0: Hello and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. Before we get into today's episode, I want to prime everybody because for those of you that have wanted to get into the Think Like a Game Designer Masterclass, there's a new opportunity coming in preparation for 2022. We're going to be offering a new version of the course that's bigger than better than ever. Now, all of the principles that I've talked about here on this podcast and in my book are not only reflected in the course, but those are doubled down on we have behind-the-scenes videos of the masterminds that have participated, the actual live discussions and coaching. You'll be able to work directly with me and my team as all from Stoneblade on your games and your concepts. And even more powerfully, you'll have access to a exclusive discord with all of your fellow students and former students that really gives an incredible community a bunch of people to help play test your games a really fun vibrant way to create that accountability that community that support that iteration loop that's absolutely critical to be able to make your games a success I have found no better way in all of my years doing this than to get people ready and to get their games going including setting up pitch scheduling days and everything else than the master class and we are going to be running the best version of it that we have ever run very soon. So I will talk more about this on the podcast, but if you want to be the first to know when this is coming, then you can go to thinklikeagamedesigner.com and click to sign up and you'll be on the email list so you will be the first to know and get access. In today's episode, I speak with Mike Turian. Mike is a Magic the Gathering Hall of Fame champion and the current product architect for Magic the Gathering. Mike has the unique experience of being on nearly every side of the success of magic from pro player to marketing manager to game developer to digital product manager. Now, I've known Mike for many, many years from our days back on the Pro Tour, and he has always been one of my favorite people to hang out with and talk to, because in addition to being brilliant, he is just one of the nicest guys I have ever encountered. And this podcast came about because I was uh, spending some time up in Seattle with friends, and Mike and I got to chatting, and I was just struck again by how much I loved chatting with him. We used to get to do it all the time by default on the Pro Tour, but since he's been working at Wizards, I don't get to see him as often. And so you know, we got about an hour into our conversation, I was like, you know what? I would love to be able to do this on the podcast because I want to share this insight with everybody else. And of course, Mike agreed, which was fantastic. And uh, really, he delivered here, right? Not only you get to kind of have the fun that I did, get in a chat with him and, and hear all the good that comes out of it, but you can really hear about how decisions get made behind the scenes at a giant company like Wizards of the Coast. And I found a lot of the stuff to be really fascinating, right? Their focus on trying to keep iterations and make decisions quickly, even inside of a giant bureaucracy, right? The way that they think about playtesting and the way they think about customer research and trying to build games that are going to have giant audiences that are very multicultural and are going to try to bring in different licenses and the kinds of decisions about how you manage a brand is all stuff that Mike gives a lot of great insight on here. And this can be really impactful to you even if you're just starting off and you've got a small game that and a small audience, those types of decisions about how you build for iterations, how you get feedback can matter. And of course, when you're planning to make a game that's going to be big and reach millions of people and have the kind of enduring success that Magic has, these kinds of lessons are critical. So I love chatting with Mike. I was really glad to get to do this. And I will just say one more thing here. Mike talks about it in the podcast, but he's done a lot of work for the Extra Life Charity. Uh, as part of, you know, he inspired me to be able to give a donation to that group. There'll be more information when Mike talks about it later. But if you at all are inspired to do so, it's a wonderful thing. You can donate. Um, please tag Mike or I on Twitter to let us know because I think he does a lot of great work. I'd love to see this podcast be another way that we can do some more good in the world, add some extra donations uh, and continue to spread the love and spread the joy of the gaming community elsewhere. So uh, without any further ado, I'm now going to let Mike Turian speak for himself. Hello and welcome. I am here with Mike Turian. Mike, it's good to be with you, buddy.
1: Justin, it's great to be here talking with you too. I'm I'm super excited.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know we we have been friends for a very long time, and we're going to get into your background story, but it uh, certainly overlaps a lot with mine. We 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 met and continued to hang out for quite a while on uh, on the Magic Pro Tour, and you and I have not seen each other as much um, over the last several years since you've been working uh, for Wizards of the Coast and building. The products that I uh, know and love, uh, but uh, it was great. We got when I was up in Seattle a few months ago. We got to spend some more time together, and I realized, you know, it's been too long since we've had a good deep dive conversation. So I figured, why not do that and share it with uh, all of our listeners?
1: It's a, it sounds fun. Yeah, it was great getting to see you. Uh, I think over the summer, and you know, I, I've been a big fan of and enjoying listening to your podcast. I think you know the design insights I hear. On it are just you know, often so spot on. and it's uh it's great to be a part of that,
0: yeah. well, it it's awesome, too, because I really like to bring in a lot of different perspectives, right? And of course, when it comes to you know magic, we're bringing in you know a lot of the people who are most influential to make it happen. We've had Richard Garfield on here twice. We've had uh, you know Mark Rosewater on here. We've had a lot of the key people. Um, and I think that with your role and your influence on it is maybe less known but but no less impactful. Um, so, i I kind of teased that you know we were going to start with their origin story but maybe just like fill people in a little bit right now what is your what is your role right now and and kind of how do you view that in light of you know sort of the game that that we all know and love
1: yeah so my title at wizards is product architect uh for magic the gathering uh what that what that ends up meaning uh you know from it's It's very much in the product design space, right? Like uh, Magic has, we come out with lots of products um, every year, and I'm really the one responsible for helping craft the vision of what those products are, you know, working with the creative designers, working with the game designers, uh, and then taking that vision and sort of carrying it throughout um, the company, and then uh, even... you know to our players right uh so for instance uh one thing that uh as we speak is upcoming uh is the dracula series card in crimson vow like i i'm i'm a huge piece of putting that type of promotion together but and then also figuring out hey where does the where do the dracula series cards show up how do they show up in the products um what products are we doing for crimson vow uh and, and so forth Re- recently somebody after i i talked about it like this they're like oh so you're kind of the the general manager for the product and uh it's it's a description that i i thought was um was pretty apt so uh that that's sort of another way to to think about what i do um there's there's a lot that goes into making magic and i i love getting you know t- to be to be a part of so much of that.
0: Yeah, so so then we, let's use that as a cue to to go back in time then, because I I want to dig in deeply into into what it means to to design products and and how that process works. But um, you know, as as I kind of started to talk about where right, you and I first met on the Magic Pro Tour, we kind of cut our teeth in a lot of ways that way. What where did that? What got you interested in games? Kind of what was the 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 path that brought you? You know, a I guess to the Pro Tour and where we met all the way to kind of now working on products.
1: Well, I mean, (laughs) I mean, I've always, you know, since I was a kid, I've, I've loved, uh, playing board games, uh, specifically, you know, like my dad and I would get together and play Axis and Allies. We'd play Acquire. um, we'd play all sorts of, you know, and of course, uh, you know, Monopoly style games, right. That, that were, uh. Popular, depending on uh, how old I was at the time, but I quickly graduated. I'll say from Monopoly to these other style of games. And by the time, and then another big piece uh, of my growing up was I was a big fan of baseball and sports and baseball cards. Right. So, um, one of the guys that also liked to collect baseball cards, we went to this summer leadership uh, training, and it was a week long thing. And on Monday, he was like, "Mike, you got to come out check out this game." And I'm like, no thanks. And on Tuesday, he asks. And on Wednesday, he asks. And and so finally, I'm like, okay, he's asked me like every day. You know, I and I had two more days of this training with him. I'm like, fine. I'll go down to the local card store. Uh, it was called Legends Sports Cards. And I bought a, a starter deck of revised at the time. And that's like, that was my first experience. And to me, coming from this background of like board games have a very fixed set of components a very fixed set of rules and magic just upended all of that it was just i mean mind-blowing the way that oh you could build new decks and there was new cards that would come out and there was new combinations of cards right and um and every game was was really so different uh i i fell in love basically right away uh and and then I taught my dad, I taught my sister, I taught my cousins, my friends. Like I was definitely uh, a huge advocate of both playing magic and evangelizing magic um, early on. And then, uh, so from there, I uh, I found out about tournaments. I think I bought my first cards, and I think it was August of 1994 uh, in, I think in November of 94, I played in my first tournament. It was, of course, what was known at the time as type one, now it would be called vintage. Uh, and I, it was an 80 person tournament and I came in second place and I was like, Oh, okay. Like I, you know, I'd only been playing for a few months and so to do so well. Uh, and then over the course of, you know, the next couple years, I, I started playing a lot and eventually would, uh, you know, win, uh, pro tour qualifiers and come in top eight at grand prix toronto and that would get me to my first pro tour which was pro tour chicago in 97 i think
0: yeah it's it's fun it's funny how much these early years of magic influenced so many of us as you know the overwhelming majority of people i speak with largely depending upon how old they are that become game designers or in the field either got hooked on dungeons and dragons first or magic and I think the 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 beauty of both of those is the thing that 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 hooks the kind of people that design games is that what you mentioned, which is that open endedness of it, right? The fact that you're crafting the experience uh, and the rules even as you get ready to then play the game itself. Uh, and I think that that modularity and that creativity uh, is just such an important seeding ground for then you know being able to design games or design products in games along those lines.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and I think too, I mean, because at the time I started playing, I was in high school and, you know, the American high school education system, I'll say it's fairly rigid, right? It's like, oh, there's right and wrong answers on this test. Uh, You need to, you know, do your homework and turn in projects. And once again, you know, a lot of times there's, I'll say, an answer key. Uh, And in many of the games I had played up until that point also very much had that same, I'll say once again, answer key, right? Feeling to them. And that just wasn't the case with magic, right? Like, it's like, Oh, you know, not that booster draft existed, but booster draft quickly became uh, my favorite format. Once, uh, I think I, I first did them around the time of Mirage's release. Um, and it's like, every experience is, is totally different the your opponent's cards are different your cards are different like as the draft goes on your strategies change and evolve and, and the same is true in constructed as well and it, it, and yet it's still on you right and so it's just it was such a divergence from I'll say the right answer to you know this world that has depth and uh you know it, it's really a game that sort of captures uh, i think a lot closer to i'll say a real world experience of hey when you're out and about in the world sure there are laws that you need to abide by but but it's very open ended right like what you do when you wake up is every day is your your choice uh to make and and i love love that in games when it really can capture that uh in the in the same open-ended way.
0: Yeah, I mean, we had I had uh, Raph Koster on the podcast um, a while ago as one of my early guests because he was one of the people that influenced me most when it came to the theory of game design and why we play games uh, and. Uh, theory of fun is his book that's very accessible but, you know largely it's like a picture book uh, that explains this principle but the you know the the heart of why we play games in the first place is the this idea of learning that that it creates these simulations these safe ways that we can explore the world around us and learn these principles and that's what makes us want to play that was what makes us want to play games and 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 when you have these kinds of games like magic, where they're games of uncertain information where the rules can change and what's important, what matters changes. Right. That was one of the things when you were playing at a high level in magic tournaments, you had to figure out what matters here, right? Are we racing for life total? Are we trying to get maximized card advantage? Are we trying to like control for the late game? Is mana the primary resource? Right. And each game that would change and being able to determine what's important and optimize for that on the fly without knowing for sure what was in your opponent's hand or what cards you were going to draw next is such a great parallel for so many of the things in life as referencing your comments about, you know, school and and being, you know, for me as an entrepreneur, there's always that question of like, what's the important area to focus on? What is it that you need to be optimizing for? And it's never totally clear. You never have like that clean cut, perfect information to say, OK, this is clearly the optimized answer. Uh, and so so those skills have have, have proven incredibly valuable not just in the craft of making games but also just you know business and life in general
1: yes yes for sure yeah i think that uh it's you know one of the things i like to say uh is we make it all up and i I think that's an important to recognize of like you say like when you're thinking about you know how you want to prioritize your time or your money it's just like oh there's you know, often the conventional wisdom, which I, I think can be a great thing to follow at times. There's certainly value to uh, following convention. But then, you know, I mean, there's a reason that we talk about thinking outside the box, right? And really what that's saying is, it's like, hey, you can imagine a world in which there is no box. And now now, what do you do? How how do you proceed? Um right do you focus on the data do you focus on uh people's stories that they're telling you do you fo- you know a lot of times you just be inspired right and it's like this is the right thing to do well how come it's just like you know people will say my gut tells me to do that uh and, and knowing which of these tactics to use how to blend them uh it it ends up really being a key to success uh that's that ends up being hard to describe and hard to pinpoint when other people, you know, inquire more, as it were.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And 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 it's actually one of the interesting things that I've noticed as an important shift. So and maybe you can relate to this, because coming from the pro player background, uh, there's this sort of bias, or at least in my own thinking towards analytical processes right trying to be able to logic and reason everything out and calculate the expected value of decision a versus decision b and you know following that logic wherever it leads and there's absolutely value to that but i know as i became more focused on experience design and crafting games as well as those things in my own life a lot of times it's not about the pure logic analytical a lot of times it is as you t- talked about this you know gut feelings or the the stories that people are going to create right and the, and, and the way that you present information and the way that people are going to feel about it is very very different than what you know the math or the logic will say and then again that's sort of true for games and for life like the stories that you choose to tell and how you choose to relate to them matters as much or more than what any given piece of logic or data is going to point you to
1: I've both been a product, you know, I'm currently a product architect, a product designer. Uh, in the past, I was a, I did game design uh, and led a number of Magic Sets game design. And one of the things that in, in both in both roles that you have to uh, think about is, hey, do I want to make a decision quickly uh, and get it and be successful with a successful decision 60% of the time? Or is this a place where... Uh, i'm going to do more research up front do more deep thinking up front conversation and get to a successful decision 80 percent of the time now the the thing is and, and of course i'm just making up those the 60 and 80 percent the numbers uh of course will vary in any situation but in the place where you think more quickly and decide more quickly you also often will have an opportunity to iterate and to say hey Oh look, we were in the forty percent scenario. This let's let's make the other decision, and or let's finesse it even further. And so, you know, making it a sixty percent successful decision, uh, and then trying again often will end up being more powerful than a slower eighty uh, percent correct, deeper thinking decision that you won't necessarily have time to iterate or change. Uh, if it turns out that you're you're headed in the wrong direction and so it's always just important to really balance those things in any design and in any in any process uh, to make sure that you know when you do reach those forks in the road that
0: you know which direction is uh,
1: then which tactic is the best to figure out the right direction
0: yeah and and I just want to underscore that that principle because the 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 way I like to look at it is trying to avoid analysis paralysis, right? There's, you can think through the number of decisions or the upsides and downsides to a given decision pair pretty much forever. And it's important to know when that analysis needs to stop. And, you also emphasize the importance of of iteration and testing right when you're designing something new there is no substitute for iterations and the, and the core principles that i teach about the core design loop is like you base the the main predictor of whether you're going to be a good designer or a bad designer is how quickly and efficiently can you move through that you know ideate test prototype test learn cycle back circle the faster you can get to that the better you're gonna, your products are going to be. The more often you can go through that cycle, the better it's going to be. We can all theorize our way. And the better you get at the job over the long term, the better your initial guesses are likely to be, but that there's just no substitute for, for testing and iterating at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I like to, the acronym I, I like to think about is DAM, D-A-M, which is you know defining success, right? And then taking action of like, okay, this is what we're actually going to do. And then measuring. Right, and, uh, and and you can, and then you basically say, "Oh, in that measurement, like, do I need to go back to redefine success, or do I need to take different action, or yeah, this was just successful. Let me let me move forward." But you're absolutely right. Like that loop is is super valuable, and I can't stress it enough. I I recall so many times I would be in meetings with designers debating. Uh, oh, what should this uh, magic uh, has a, lands and, you know, what should this dual land cycle do or what should this land cycle do? And, you know, we could spend hours debating the merits, but often, often when we actually prototyped up the cards and played them, it really helped us focus in on, oh, this is what uh, the right path was all along. And so a lot of that early discussion really, to me, is about that definition of success and giving people to say, hey, this cycle should accomplish X or Y. Um, so that way, you know, everyone sort of agrees on, oh, OK, good. This these cars, they're doing the best at hitting hitting the goals that we've set out for them.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. So this was one of this maybe could be a good cue and to talk about the next part of your history where you make this transition from being a pro player to being a game designer, even before you became a a product architect, Uh, because I know when I made that transition at first. We fell into the exact trap you're talking about. Like we were there, and I was in a room with really, really smart people who were all mostly pro Magic players. Dave Humphreys, who used to work with, and is I think it's the lead lead developer for Magic now, and uh, you know Patrick Sullivan and Brian Kibler, and like tons of others, just like really smart, really talented people. And we would just sit in a room and debate the minutia for hours and hours and hours. And I realized at a certain point that the uh, our collective brain power was functionally making us all stupider because we would just be so good at debating all these little points that we would not just get things into paper form and try it. And we would have learned so much faster. And so that was one of many powerful lessons I picked up, uh, you know, somewhat the hard way uh, going through this for for hours and hours over, over several years, frankly. Uh, so maybe that you can speak to that what that transition process was like for you and maybe some lessons that came in as you go from being a pro player and thinking about games as a consumer and a player to being a a game designer and, and and working with teams and building things that way.
1: Yeah. So uh, in, so 1997 was my first pro tour. Uh, I I got to team up with uh, Randy Bueller uh, who went on to become the the head of magic R and D Eric Lauer, who still works uh, in, in making magic alongside me and, and as you mentioned, Dave Humphreys. Um, and uh, Randy actually won the first Pro Tour that we playtested for. And, you know, we would write articles. And so over the course of the next seven, eight years, um, I continued playing a lot of magic and, uh, and doing a lot of playtesting. Randy actually got hired at Wizards um, a few years after he won that Pro Tour. And eventually, he would bring me in as uh, as a game designer. You know, one of the big things with Magic having uh, a big tournament scene is we always wanted to make sure that the cards were designed and balanced and fun. Uh, and so we would always, their wizards would always be bringing in new new people from the Pro Tour to help to help with that design and balance portion. And one of the things that I, I think. Talking about that transition, you know, when I joined Wizards in 2004 that was so key was all of that playtesting experience, right? Of course, when we were playtesting for the Pro Tour, it was like the goal was, hey, we each are trying to get better, make ourselves better, and ultimately win uh, the Pro Tour or whatever event uh, we were playing in. And with the game designer, you have to switch that goal, right? Like all of a sudden now when you're playtesting, like success is not about winning the game but it's about making a better game a better experience uh for all of the players right making sure you capture that resonance however the, that play test piece you know i mean going back to the point that play test piece was really a key uh transferable skill that it's like yes it's like sure the goal has changed But, uh, you know, from winning to creating a fun game, but how you get there, it's still about that experience, right? Because a lot of times when you were playing and playtesting to win, it was, oh, yeah, on paper, this card looks like the right card to be including in my deck, but it just, it never works out. And like, and sometimes you eventually put your finger on how come it's not working out and other times you never do. But the realization of, look, this isn't working, let's try something different. It's something you need both to help win at games and to make games fun. Of oh, here's a mechanic in the set that we thought would really work well, but you know, for various reasons, it it doesn't. It doesn't have the right synergy. It doesn't have the right connection to the flavor of the set, um, and we can do better. So let's let's do better. And a lot, you know, I I'm sure many of your listeners. Uh, read Mark Rosewater's uh, articles or listen to his mini podcast. A lot of his best stories and most compelling stories are times when you have that moment of realization of, hey, like e- e- we let's take these learnings and use them because we need to make a, a, a change. And uh, the learning is what actually and the change is what makes you know takes games from okay games to good games to even great games
0: yeah and and you dropped a few principles in there that maybe it's worth it's worth breaking out a little bit more, right? And so you know we've 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 emphasized uh, maybe some people think to death, but I think it's worth it, you know this importance of really play testing and seeing what the the results are from actually physically trying things versus just theorizing, but also you know not just the idea of something being kind of balanced from a tournament perspective, which is the the surface level of what a lot of people think is important and it is important, but then this idea of the flavor and the synergies within the set, the, you know, what, what other things became more apparent to you? And maybe there's a a good story to associate with this as you worked behind the scenes and as you're working with these teams that were maybe more important or counterintuitively more important than you thought they were, or less important than you thought they were when you first started designing.
1: Uh, I definitely, underestimated the the power of that um, I was like the creative resonance early on I like to I like to joke and and people like to make fun of me because I always I always would say oh I didn't realize that the magic set invasion uh, from a story perspective was a, a, about an invasion I was just like <laughs> you know and, and I got to Wizards and, and someone told me this and I was like oh I had no idea um, and, and, and I think that, you know, because magic has been about, I'll say classic, like its origin was very much in that D classic fantasy, uh, realm, a lot of the early work were, Oh, here's, here's an angel it's Sari angel. And you're like, Oh, there's, there's good cre- uh, creative connection to the, to the individual creature types. Um, but as we've gone on. You know, like when working on Caldheim, it's a set. That, you know, it's a set that's really inspired by Viking mythology. Uh, you know, working on Midnight Hunt, it's a set inspired by you know Gothic horror and werewolves. And so, finding more ways to get the design, the mechanics, everything about the set to be oozing the flavor of of what that world is about, right? It, it, and I think that. Um, every time when doing design it's just it's a little it's easy to underestimate that because i think for one because it's challenging to hit on the nose and it's challenge challenging to do right you know i i'm sure you've experienced many many playtests of cards without art and without the uh actual final names and so and i have as well right but but realizing, oh, in order to get this card right, like, uh, let's let's spend more time on this connection. One of the things I give Aaron Forsythe, uh, the VP of Magic Design, a lot of credit for is back when uh, we were working, uh, we were, I think, bringing back the corset. set. Um, it was like, uh, I think Magic Corset 2010, I believe was the, the return to the corset. And one of the things I really remember is Aaron printed out uh, and did, did a design challenge where it was make the most flavorful lich, make the most flavorful vampire, make the most like. And so there were, you know, nine or 12 or 15 creature types uh, that were printed out. And that was sort of the that was how that design went of instead of mechanics first, it was creative first and then making sure the mechanics all tie back into it and uh I think that's just a really powerful lesson that, you know, a lot of times, especially when I, you know, once again, I'm still very much into board games. And I'll I'll say I'll play Euro-style board games where I feel like I'm moving cogs around. Uh, It's like, oh, get a blue cog and trade it for a red cog. And then the red cog turns into two greens. And you can turn three greens in for a victory point. Those games often just end up falling flat. Like, I'll play them. I'll, I'll... Play them once, I'll play them twice. But to me, they just will not have the the longevity of some games that are just far more flavorful and far more connected. Uh, and as a as a package, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So there's there's so many things I want to say about this. I I think uh, you know this this idea of creative resonance and the flavor and the story of the game kind of coming through is is I agree. It's something that I was slow to come to also. Um, and and I think for listeners out there you tend people tend to start in one of two places there there are actually multiple places you can start but typically speaking people start in one of two places which is either they're mechanics first or flavor first designers and the mechanic the reason i think you and i you know we come from a sort of kind of pro gaming background where the mechanics and the analytical breakdown is critical so that's like my place is always from mechanics first it sounds like that's where you started as well and so being able to break that habit by forcing yourself to start with story first and flavor first uh, is is really powerful. And for those of you out there that are on the opposite train, where it's like, hey, this really cool story. And, and and I know from some of the students in my things like games under class come from this place where they like they have these amazing stories and amazing ideas. And then the mechanics that fall out of that are just, you know, kind of a jumbled mess, right? It's just like, yeah, sure. every piece is sort of designed on its own and not cohesive together. Uh, and so then for those people, I think the better thing is like force them to start start with mechanics first like start with the start against your instincts to start training yourself to be better at the other side of it to make something that is truly magical and truly a great game where where the you couldn't tell where the designer started that feels like the cohesiveness of the creative and the flavor is phenomenal and the cohesiveness and synergy of the of the mechanics is phenomenal and it all just blends together like those are the the designs i know i'm most proud of what i've done and 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 i'm sure uh, it sounds like the same same for you yeah,
1: yeah, for for sure it is, and and I want to you know, because I, I know a lot of uh, your listeners are likely people who are uh, I'll say doing it all right. The, oh, they're the game designers. They're they're working on getting their you know game to Kickstarter or however they decide to to bring it to market. You know, I I think this creative mechanic uh, balance and resonance uh, topic it extends to. The product packaging—it just—it extends to how you talk about your product and how you get people excited about it, right? Just up, up and down the line, it's oh, knowing—I'll say—the heart of what makes your product uh, and your game awesome uh, is is so key. I mean, I, I know it's how come people are like, you know, when they're talking about what's your elevator pitch for a game, a lot of what I think that is really. Indirectly trying to do is say to the person, Hey, you have a minute to talk about your game and your idea. What's your first sentence? Because you're only going to get, you know, a paragraph or two out before your minute's up. And, you know, especially uh, in a world where so many games are coming out video games, board games, card games, you know, every day, you just don't have the player's attention for very long before they they're going to wander off and, you know, click on the next uh, the next link and visit the next game.
0: Right? Right. Yeah, that's it's the common refrain nowadays, right? And in, in the one sense, it's easier than ever to be a game designer because you the the tools that are available to make games, the lessons that are free and available out there, the production, you know, quint on demand and many cheap ways to get access to production. All that stuff's easier than it's ever been by a lot. But the flip side of that truth is that the discovery process is harder than it's ever been. There's so many games. There's so much noise. There's so many channels. Uh, the ability to break through and get your game noticed and get somebody to pay attention beyond that first sentence is incredibly difficult. And and so I, I, I echo your sentiment, and I always advise designers, no matter where they are, you need to be developing your elevator pitch from the very beginning. And if you don't know what that hook is at the very beginning, then you're going to have trouble... Throughout the design process, because whenever you're faced with tough decisions, knowing what the core of your game is, what the core tension, the core excitement, and selling point uh, is going to help you to make those decisions. And you know, it's not to say that you can't change it, right? If you find that the part of the game that's really the most fun is not what you thought, that comes from prototyping. You know, it will evolve over time, but knowing that will help you carry you through not just the design process, but as you said, the packaging design, the how you do the marketing, thinking of it all as the heart of what you do when you design products uh is critical and that's why I actually was really particularly excited to have you on the podcast now because you've you've had this experience from all these different angles right from so the the player consumer casual the player consumer as a profe- you know as a pro level then the designer working on games you know the kind of w- what we more traditionally think of as the game design part and now as a product architect uh, and so so I'd, yeah I'd love to transition to how those design principles work for you now and what what does the process look like is is are you are you ideating what kind of new product you'd want to see and then talking to the design team about it is it coming at you the other way like what what does that look like nowadays for you
1: well a a lot of times you know especially with magic um we're doing we're we're tapping into a number of other uh, brands right like we've we've announced uh Lord of the Rings that we're, we're, we're doing a, uh, a set with Lord of the Rings in it. Um, we did for, uh, Ikoria, which was a set about monsters. We brought in the King of the Monsters, Godzilla. Um, you know, it, it, like, to me, this is the new, uh, the new exciting space. I mean, of course there's lots, lots of awesomeness and magic, but it's like, okay, like, how does what does it mean when magic is meeting these other these other brands and these other expressions like uh what what is the best way to to handle that and also what is the best way to to make sure that our our players know like hey this is the product that's intended for me you know especially uh an- another good uh another great thing that magic's really done is you know commander uh which it, it has become you know one, one of the favorite formats of of our players right over the past uh over the past decade and it just you know continues to grow and continues to bring in new players and commander's a really interesting format because you know unlike the formats like when we were playing on the pro tour which were highly competitive uh you know and it's one-on-one commander is a multiplayer uh game and so oh like how often do we want to be coming out with new commander decks where do those commander decks you know who are they supposed to be connecting with um another thing that's become invaluable for for me is just working with our market research teams and our consumer insight teams and you know because like as magic expands and as magic grows it's those those teams really help uh you know, us, us understand, Oh, this is what the magic player wants. Like this is, this is the direction our audience is interested in and and where we're looking at growing. And so that way we can help blend those, those learnings of, Oh, you know, what more magic players than ever are, you know, interested in the story. Uh, Okay. Well, how how are we going to get more story into our products? and so th- those those insights really help us when we're building out new products, and then uh, the cards inside of those those products as well. So
0: yeah, I, I again, tons of things I want to I want to pick at here, but let's start let's start with the end here. You you know when you talk about um, you know consumer research, right? That's a that's a pretty fuzzy term for a lot of people. I actually just had a conversation with the uh, Brotherwise team about this very topic, and I'm guessing that your approach to this is going to be different than theirs, given your uh wizards resources but what does it what does it mean to say consumer research how do you design specific questions do you go and work with a firm that tells you what you're supposed to know do you what is what is and maybe you could share some of the the insights and process here that that, that people maybe no, don't have access to if they're not behind the scenes where you well,
1: are i i, I laugh I, I laugh when you talk about oh t- talking with a, an outside firm telling us uh what we should know you know one, one of the things that's uh continually true with with magic, uh, and I'm sure once again uh, with your games and lots of games, is you know if one of the challenges is often oh the game the game has an audience and it has a language to it and it has um, a culture to it that uh, unless unless somebody is already I'll say accustomed to that uh, language and culture, it, it often is uh, challenging for outsiders to understand. Uh, the ecosystem because you know magic has, has grown and, and become uh, such a thing. Now to, in- to answer the uh, the research part, uh, if you go to you know we're always fielding uh, different surveys. Um, if you go to magictheethering.com on any given day, you know I'm, well well I guess well I guess on any given day there's not necessarily a a survey up, but we're definitely, you know, we really crave and want players' feedback. And, you know, and of course we get some of that via social media and whatnot, but it's great to have it in sort of the both quantifiable, quantitative and qualitative uh, sources. And so, you know, we are we are fielding surveys um, and, and just have tons and tons of data of, you know, between things like, hey, what was our players' favorite card in a set? What what made them excited? What were their uh, What were their key motivations for buying um, certain products? What did they think of the aesthetics? Um, and and we do that uh, we'll do that via, uh, for sets, and then we also do that for Magic as a whole, right? Understanding oh you know I mean one of the, the big ones of course in the past couple of years was how did COVID impact uh, Magic play. Right. Uh, You know, was where, you know, of course, like it's going to push people to MTG arena, right. And magic online some, Oh, but you know, were people forming, I'll say closed groups of, of close friends and getting together and playing with them or uh, you know, did they, did they go do other activities? Like, um, and so basically on, on any axis uh, you know, like new players, great. We'll go out and do new player research and try to learn about them. We'll do, you know, we uh, Wizards is um, pushing more and more away from uh, plastics. Uh, you know, Hasbro announced, uh, you know, we're trying to get plastics out of our packaging uh, to to just be better environmental partners. Um, and so we do research on the different packaging elements. I mean, it. Uh, I, I've just scratched the surface of. Of the amount of research and the amount of data that we're gathering uh, to really help oh, us make informed decisions.
0: Yeah, so so then uh, you know what I found the couple times when I have been in heavy data mode, right? This was originally when I was doing uh, we did Soulforge Digital, we had tons of data on what people were doing. We see the sum with Ascension Digital too, uh, and then we did a few surveys and things in the past. And I find the data sort of helpful, but I've also found there's this, there's this tragedy of too much data as well, right? You've got a bunch of smart people in a room that have a bunch of data, you can use that data to argue damn near anything. (laughs) Uh, And uh, very often, unless you're doing like a strict A-B test, uh, which is often hard to do when you're talking about physical products and surveys, uh, you, you really don't have a lot of concrete actionable information that comes out of it do you have you found that same problem or do you have a process for which you can parse this data or is it just hey this is just more you know gristle for the mill of decision making and we just take it in and it's just part of the part of the puzzle
1: uh i mean i i definitely think that uh that that can always be a challenge right what you're talking about of having i'll say too much data uh you know I, i give a lot of credit to our our insights teams uh the it in terms of the organization and i i think also another thing is just having baselines having historicals right like some of the some of the set based assessments i'm talking about magic has been do, you know magic itself has been around for 25 plus years right and um you know some of these uh uh, the surveys and whatnot uh, have been going for not that whole time, but a lot of that time, and so those type of I'll say baselines, and it, it just helps get it to get a uh, a group understanding of of what expectations are and what success looks like, because you're right. I mean, um, you know, a lot of times you'll just independently you'll be like, oh, this um this tested at a 3.8 out of five and it's like, okay, is that good? Is that bad? I mean, I, I know, I know if it was a five, it'd be pretty clear, but like, what does it mean to be a 3.8? Right. It, it, and that's, that's when you can go around and around. Uh, however, when it's like, Oh, look, yep. This, this treatment here was a 3.8 and tip, you know, that's the best, uh, that's the best all year. Right. All of a sudden it gives you a, a good you know those comparisons quickly can help i'll say focus the conversation uh on like oh all right well that's you know well that's unexpected we didn't think that it would be the best all year but let's now let's start talking about how come what went right what you know what do we think happened here right and of course too i mean i'll say that you know i uh there's a lot of open-end uh open-end comments and uh perusing those can often you know uh, help, help bring uh, that's the, you know the qualitative and the quantitative uh, matching, uh, that, that can also be really powerful and, and break out of that gridlock of just uh, too much data
0: yeah yeah i think that's i think that's great so so if i were going to break down and, and and please correct me if i'm wrong some some principles here that people could apply um you know when it comes to you know take the time to survey your audience if you have a small audience or just people you can do this you know on social media or whatever platforms you have you don't necessarily have to have some big firm to to do a formal test uh try to ask specific questions right so you talked about things like you know packaging or fonts or theme and you know really to give yourself an opportunity to break out the different elements that you might be interested in um try to you know make make these surveys happen over time so you can better make comparisons even if you can't do a strict a b test in the moment you could do it over time and, and and with different different elements to help make things that are that'll compare and try to gather both qualitative and quantitative information so that you can you know see let people tell you what they want to say uh, in addition to kind of dialing in some of the specific metrics that you're looking for
1: yeah yeah I, I think that's all I think that's all spot on Justin and one thing I also want to add to that is you know one thing I see uh, one mistake I see amateur game designers make is they're always in the room. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it's not it, it often it's just out of practicality of like, oh, you need to learn the game from like, oh, hey, I have this prototype. Uh, I want us to play it. OK, now I want to get your feedback. But remember, like a lot of times you're playing with your friends, you're playing with people who are, I'll say design, who are incentivized to tell you um, this was fun. I had a good time because they want to remain your friend and they want you to be encouraged. Um <laughs> And you know, and of course, in some ways that is encouraging. In other ways, it's doing you a disservice because uh, you know it's it's really speaking back to the Pro Tour days. I remember uh, talking to John Finkel, who's arguably the best Magic player of all time, um, and you know, he was really talking about how uh, two of his teammates, Dan O'Mahony, Schwartz, and Stephen O'Mahony, Schwartz, were so valuable to him because they would tell him the truth, right? Like yeah, they recognized both that he was the best magic player of all time, or one of them, uh, but also that, that he was fallible. And, um, and and so keeping that in mind of, oh, how are you biasing your, your survey and your data, right? Whether that's just by bringing in preconceived notions or as I was mentioning at the start of this, just being in the room with the people that you're looking for feedback for is uh, uh, can can definitely lead you astray.
0: Yeah, yeah. I uh, I've talked about this on a couple of other podcasts. Uh, one of my favorites to refer people back to is Eric Lang's podcast, where he will uh, e- e- evoke uh, negative responses pretty aggressively. Uh, and uh, but uh, but I do think that. You know the couple of times where I've been able to do the classic uh, kind of one-way mirror tests have been unbelievably valuable. Uh, where you can actually watch people botch uh, your game in ways that are so frustrating, but you can't, you know, you can't stop them, and you thus you learn a lot more. Um, and so this this remote survey is another good way to do that. People will be uh, more direct, uh, we'll just say, uh, some through an online form or when you're not in the room than than when you're just standing there as the designer. So uh, those are those are great great yeah. insights oh, yeah, my, my, oh, my,
1: oh. I i'm going to tell i'm going to tell my favorite one-way mirror story so we uh so you know of course like we we were testing a starter product um this was now decades ago uh for magic and uh it was a one-way mirror situation right so we have uh we brought in two teenagers um and for the experiment we told the researcher who would go in and give them the product okay Tell them to do to act naturally. Tell them to do you know just just whatever they would do when they're at home. And so the researcher, you know, they they follow our instructions and they drop off these two starter decks and they tell the teenage, uh, I think they were teenage boys, uh, like, hey, you know, just just do whatever you would do at home. Um, and so the two kids are sitting there and the starter decks are in the, this room. And the room is basically empty besides this, right? They, we've taken away, uh, I don't even know if cell phones were a thing, but they don't have any phones. They have like literally no activities to do other than open up this, this starter deck product. And they just sit there at the table with the decks in the middle of the table. And so we had to go, it's like, okay, well, this clearly, this clearly has failed. Um, send the researcher back in. And say, hey, now you need to open these and, and try out these uh, a starter decks. But you just, <laughs> you know, you just don't know where the research is going to go and how people are going to respond. Uh, but I, I, I will always remember those uh, those two kids just being like, I would rather do nothing than engage with your game. Uh, so wow, it, it, that's it, amazing. That, yeah. Well, <laughs> it was something. <laughs> it was something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've talked uh, we've talked a bit about the you know the importance of of consumer research and being able to try to get valuable feedback that's not you know not with you in the room and how to process that feedback, which are all you know just skills I continue to to work towards and and continue to develop. I think it's really worthwhile for for everybody. Um, you know, you've also talked about a couple of things that came out of uh your recent product development process uh one of which was working new ip into magic right so that's both from dungeons and dragons and godzilla and lord of the rings um as well as commander which is a a game that came from you know from the community uh not from not from wizards a format anyway uh and and i know that now it's sort of in retrospect those things seem like pretty obvious decisions they've been very successful and the uh and and they're They're making a lot of money, but I also know there was a lot of resistance uh, inside of Wizards of the Coast to these ideas, and for you know the idea that it took this long for there to be, for example, a Dungeons and Dragons magic set when Wizards owns both of those IP, uh, to many people is 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 kind of bizarre. Uh, So, and and I even had uh, Peter Atkinson on this of a podcast uh, talking about how he pushed for this back way, way back in the day. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what that decision-making process was like. And if this was something that you were, as the product architect were part of pushing, or, or I just would love to know some of those stories. I, I, it's it's definitely one of those interesting product life cycle questions.
1: Well, I, yeah, I, I definitely want to give a lot of, uh, so yes, there's definitely been a lot of back and forth over the years about, you know, what the magic what magic is what magic should should be you know one of the things that we've uh really embraced more uh more recently than in the past is this understanding that oh the magic audience is just it's it's bigger than we ever imagined there's there's people who are motivated by you know more aspects right like uh I think a lot of uh, Magic's history, sort of, when the after the Pro Tour was created, um, it became sort of you know very focused on this one-on-one style gameplay, right? And I win, you lose. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, Commander, uh, you know, introduced multiplayer. I mean, multiplayer was always was a thing early on, but sort of the the competitive. Uh, aspects of magic were promoted And, and more recently we've you know just said like hey the magic audience is is bigger they want they want story they want you know they're fans of not just magic but they're fans of uh lots of these other these other uh properties and expressions uh that you're mentioning like how do we do that and i give a lot of credit to uh aaron forsyth here again uh you know you know, he really came to the the magic design group and the magic business teams and just really um, talked about uh, the opportunities of, hey, you know, here's magic can do more. Magic design can be, uh, you know, it can be more than just this one-on-one play. Uh, There's, there's really a lot of space and a lot of opportunity for us to connect and make cards that that people love. Uh, you know that connect. You know Lord of the Rings to Magic. That connect uh, Godzilla to Magic, right? Um, the Stranger Things. Uh, you know there, there's there's tons of, the, uh, of these properties that uh, we've been we've been working with and and are super excited to to do. Um, you know, for from my standpoint, one of the the big pieces was uh figuring out what it meant uh like from an organization point of view to be uh partnering with these other brands. Uh you know, uh one of the places I'm really involved in is with Extra Life, which does uh uh charity fundraising for uh, children's hospitals and the uh, the product we did for the first product that we did for Extra Life was uh, was Ponies the Galloping. So this was taking Magic the Gathering and My Little Ponies and making a product where the sales, uh, a portion of the sales would go and benefit um, children's hospitals. And so I was excited about it from the charity aspect, of course, but then I also was excited of like, oh, let's start, you know, learning about what it means to be working with, uh, another brand. Right. And, and we had dabbled b- before then. Um, but that was really one of the, f- the first, uh, big opportunities sort of after Aaron gave, uh, uh, gave his presentation and we just continue to grow and learn and, and do, uh, better things. Right. Like, um, I was super excited about uh Acoria and partnering with Toho and Godzilla. Uh, and, and then we, you know, we got to incorporate it into our secret layer uh, product line, right? We, we did a walking dead product. We've done stranger things uh, just recently. Um, and now, like I mentioned before with the, uh, with Crimson Val, we have Dracula series box toppers and in the collector boosters, it's like, Oh, like, You know, it's a set about vampires, like what would this set be without, you know, the ultimate vampire that that really uh, started it all in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, And so, yeah, lots of opportunities. I I hope you can hear how excited I am by by all of it, because it's been uh, it's been pretty awesome to be able to to work with, you know, uh, these top tier properties in uh, expressions and bring them to magic.
0: Yeah, it's it's I mean it's something I know I've been very excited about uh, to see finally come to life. And and I think there's lots of great examples here where you get to bring some of those principles we talked about earlier to, to bear where you're really able to tell the story, right? When you're working with these IP, it's even more important that you Tell their story well; that it resonates with their audience well. Um, you know, then, then when you're telling a, a a unique to magic story, where you know the audience is sort of already invested to begin with, and both are important. Um, you know, I think I I was particularly impressed when I saw the the Dungeons and Dragons set, and there were a series of cards where you had a, a modal choice to make, and they were presented like a Dungeons and Dragons adventures you know it's like you come to a river and you know do you wade over it or you know go around and if you wait over it then you got some you know there was you know s- t- tapped a creature or if you went around then it did something else I forget the specifics but it just like created that that little bit of extra flavor that made the choice a story was just so powerful and so amazing I was really I was really impressed uh and there's a lot of little 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 things like that that are really really fun
1: yeah yeah for forgotten realm right, which is the d and d set uh, you're mentioning, yeah, the designers just really really connected so well with, hey, okay, what does it mean to be a magic card that's inspired by d and d, right? And so you were talking about like sort of the um, the ability, the you know the these abilities or you know, the flavor text style, things of, oh, the the name that's given there doesn't have any mechanical use. It, it is really uh, just flavor. But that flavor really takes it from, hey, you know, I mean, there's cards like Cryptic Command, which have four different choices on them. But here, these choices were presented just like you would expect uh, in a DD and d campaign and how that makes the difference. And then, you know, uh, extending that to Uh, One of the things Magic's really uh, expanded on a lot is what we call Booster Fun, right? Making these awesome, desirable objects, uh, cards that really once again connect. And, you know, we had uh, cards that tied back, like their alternate versions tied back to those original D&D modules or, you know, the D&D rule books that you would get of the past and have art in the style of those cards so you're holding a beholder that while it's a different illustration than was maybe in your original d d books it's very much inspired by and easily would have fit into uh those original those original rule books and, and often too d- done by some of the the original d d artists um and so that that was a super cool touch for uh longtime d d players who just you know l- love some of those old school uh artists work
0: yeah, so so you you mentioned a phrase here which I'd like to unpack a little bit called uh, booster fun, uh, and 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 I also want is that you know I recognize we, we only have so much time left, and I really want to spend some time, you know, talking about the parts of design and the parts that make a product fun that 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 are not commonly discussed here. So booster fun, uh, you know, we can unpack, and I assume you know has to do with that a joy of opening a booster, but also you know packaging design and placement and all of those things. Like I'd love to just get your insights because as a product architect it's your job to think through all of this stuff um and and i think it's something that that designers don't put enough thought into generally so so maybe we'll start with booster fun and we can kind of jump around from there
1: yeah so so booster fun um you know one of the when we were talking about research earlier one of the one of the main reasons that people say they open up packs of magic is fun right they want they want the joy of of opening up Uh, a booster pack. And so really when we took on project, you know, at the time it was called project booster fun, we've, we've simplified it to simply booster fun um, was okay. How can we make opening a magic pack more fun? Uh, And it, it, and also, you know, what is, what all does that entail? So, um, you know, starting with throne of Eldraine uh, we, we sort of rolled out booster fun. We had these um, adventure frames. Eldraine is, a, uh, is set in a sort of fairy tale, adventure uh, style setting, right? And so the adventure frames, you know, they had very, they looked like a storybook and uh, it was just a really, a really nice touch. And then we did an alternate version um, and introduced the collector booster, which was a brand new product type, you know, So instead of for, for years and years, magic only had uh, what I'll call the draft booster Uh, you know, 15 cards yet you could open it, you could draft it. It was one size fits all, but once again, we just realized, Hey, that, you know, our audience is bigger than this. Now there's, you know, there's people who love collecting. There's people who love uh, you know, the, the aesthetics of magic and are motivated by that. Like, how how can we build um, some more distinction into into our product lineup so that way the the magic player who wants to draft and loves drafting like yes we can build the the best draft booster for them but for the player who's more into it for the collecting piece like what is what does that look like and so booster fun and the collector booster sort of all partnered up and. And became this package, and became part of just, I'll say, a new way of thinking about magic. Where, oh, like, what are what are our alternate variants that are super exciting that capture this world um, super well? And you know, we we've really gone, um, we've you know, evolved and grown a lot from even those early steps um, in Throne of Eldraine. And once again, talk, talking about bringing in other, other properties uh, to Magic, expanding the the variants that we're doing. So it's like, oh, uh, here it is in, in Midnight Hunt. We have, you know, for the Legends, we have a showcase Eternal Night, and we do this black and white style for the Legends and the lands. But then also, since Midnight Hunt's about werewolves, there's a fang, showcase Fang frame. And, you know, it's really just given us a chance to expand um, are offering it also to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you see these, uh, these cards, I mean, they, they are outstanding. One of my favorite parts of my job is, uh, working on these showcase treatments, right? The booster fun, uh, and, and seeing them because they all like the creative team does an amazing job. And, uh, when we show them off internally, they always get lots of oohs and ahs. They really just captures like, uh, that joy and the, the booster fun that they're intended to bring.
0: Yeah. So, so, you know, when I think about this in terms of, you know, other designs and things that people can use is that thinking about that product opening experience, thinking about what it is that's like people are looking for when they pick a thing up off the shelf and what the feelings and emotions that they have when they open up, whether it's a randomized pack or even a fixed content new release or something for your product uh, is is really important and has uh, a lot of drivers for people that are going to be, are they going to open up the next pack or open up your next product? Uh, and in addition to the other principle that you've now highlighted multiple times, which is that, you know, there's a lot of, different members of the audience that play your game for different reasons and being conscious of how you're serving each side of that audience and not losing sight of one because you're focused on the competitive players too much or whatever specific demographic um, I think is a really important thing. And that also ties back to, you know, the surveys, right? It sounds like that that consumer research is part of what revealed a lot of the stuff to you that, hey, people really care about the fun of opening a pack experience or actually a lot majority of our players are playing commander at home, not playing in, pro, you know, project qualifiers. And how do we serve those people like that? Just getting that information, getting out of your own internal biases is so is so critical.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, you asked me about the, the packaging piece of it. I think those internal biases, you know, often, when you've been working on a product, you end up very close to the product, right? Like, um, you know, even you know, I've been at Wizards for 17 years, yeah, 17 years, and so I know the ins and outs about much of what Magic has done uh, during that time. But it's important to remember that there's there's a player out there who they're they're buying their first you know they're buying your game or their first pack today, right? And so what what is that experience like for the first time player or even the the occasional uh, player? I remember. I remember around the time uh, one of the Ravnica sets um, was coming out, and I happened to be on jury duty. Right, and jury duty is basically the uh, the, the the most uh, random sample uh, of an audience that you can get. Right, and I happened to be talking to one of. There's a lot of downtime during jury duty, uh, and so I was talking to one of the other people, and they told me that they were a magic player and that they were a really big fan of blue and red. And I said to them like, oh, are you excited for that? You know, magic's going back to Ravnica and for the new uh, blue, the blue red guild is called. Is it in Ravnica? Are you excited for? Is it? And they looked at me like I was from another planet, right? Like, like their, their experiences with magic are they would walk into a Walmart or a target and buy a couple packs of whatever happened to be there. Right. They didn't, They're not reading the magic website. They're not up to date with, oh, here's this new set coming out. Like they literally just buy a few packs and dabble here and there. And it's just a really good reminder of, you know, a lot of the conversations and a lot of what you feel are are important are often um, lost on on your players because they are just not nearly as close to the product uh, and the game as you are, as the designer working on it, you know, day in and day out, right? Like, I, I don't know about you, Justin, but I've definitely woken up in the middle of the night and been like, oh, I need to change this this card, right? Back when I was a designer, <laughs> like, and I'm like, oh, I, w- was this in my dreams? Like, why, how come my first thought of consciousness is uh, I need to change this card or I need to change this mechanic? Like, that's how that's how close you are as a designer where compared to this person on jury duty, you know, they, they didn't even realize that the new, the new set was coming out, right? And they didn't even realize, oh, that blue red's called, is it, et cetera, et cetera. Like, they, it's just all, all was lost on them.
0: So practically speaking, how does that lead to different behaviors on your part right so we know you know you you tend to, to focus on the people who are most invested and certainly the people who are commenting online or or your own bias for being super close to it leads you to a certain set of beliefs knowing that there's this silent majority out there of new players casual players people who don't really engage as much how does that change your your day-to-day or what what do you what do you how does it influence the product design
1: uh i mean to me i, I think one of the uh I'll, I'll say it wants me to make things. I'll say simple and high contrast, right? Of like, oh, once again, you know, for for the player who's who's walking by, you only have a few seconds to grab their attention, and it has to be something very compelling and very direct to even to even do that, right? Like, if you're if you go into a hobby store, you know, you're, or if you're on Steam purchasing a new game, whatever. However, however you get your games and and buy the different components, it's like it's often likely that the the person won't even see what you have to offer. So how do you catch their eye? And once you have caught their eye, how do you how do you make sure you maintain that? Right. Um, And so have so often it's just having that simple message, having a compelling message, having something that's repetitive of. Oh, maybe, maybe they see it the first time and, and decide no, but the second time, you know, they realized, oh, that is something I wanted. Um, from the, from the direct card design perspective, I remember working on, uh, I think it was Future Sight and one of my, one of the people, you know, all the design, like I was the design lead. There were team members. One of the team members was trying to convince me of like, oh, players are tired of slivers, right? Which is one of the creature types. And it was really more the fact that he, as, as someone working on Magic and really close to Magic, had just seen Slivers time and again over the course of uh, his experience. But I realized that, like, you know, at the time, Slivers were, were quite popular with our fans. And there's likely players who didn't buy those past sets that had Slivers. And so for them, um, they wouldn't be tired of it, Right but it's just that internal perspective of you spend all day looking at, looking at the cards that you're working on, the products that you're working on. And you have to remember, that's just, you know, uh, the vast majority of your players are going to to get together with their friends, you know, once a week or twice a week to play games. And so h- how come they're picking your game as the one to play or to talk about or to purchase? Um, Right, because there's there's a lot of awesome games out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think that uh, the oh man, there's so many more things I want to talk about, but I don't have time. So, all right, I guess I'm going to bring this back to to some of the the core things I know people must be asking because I think you're, you know, you've been working there for 17 years. You have what is a dream job to millions. Uh, if somebody were getting started today and wanted to aspire to do what you do. Uh, whether that be at Wizards specifically or, you know, in a similar vein, what advice would you have for them?
1: Well, I, I, I first, you know, in some way, uh, while, I, while I only briefly touched on my origin story, um, the fact to, to me that we're game designers, like if you had gone back to to us when we were 14 and said like, oh, is this, is this your dream? Is this something like it, it wasn't even in my field of vision that game design was a thing, right? Like,
0: yeah. Totally.
1: <laughs> right? It's just like, you know, and, and if you had said it, I'd be like, oh, I guess, that, I guess that makes sense that someone out there is like making Clue and designing how it works and the rules and, and this and that. And there's someone else working on the packaging and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but so I, I, I say that to really highlight, I, I think both of our paths were highly unconventional. Right. And I I think one of the things that's important for someone who wants to get into the field is there are conventional ways. Right. Like now now there are like um, university programs offer uh, game design. Uh, You can, of course, just, you know, join game design groups and do game designs. And of course, I mean, as we were highlighting before, just doing it and an experience of like, you know, design, design your own game. Um, take an existing design game and you know design an expansion. Um, you know, remember that. There, but I, I think ultimately the thing I would say is it's important to remember that, that the field is very new, and I think that there's lots of unconventional paths in that you have to explore and follow your figure out what you're good at and then follow your passion. Right? I mean, you know, while we've been talking. It, like there are so many people that help make magic and help make these games, right. You know uh, develop computer developers, programmers um, you know, finance people, legal uh, sales, like, you know, marketing brand. And so uh, if it's a field that you're really interested in uh, getting into, you know, that's awesome. Uh, But tap into what you love and find a way to blend that with uh, games. Right, and, and and I think that's a a great path towards success. And even and if it doesn't work out, at least then you'll have a a great skill that you know uh, lots of companies will want. And you can still keep playing and designing games as a hobby. And I think that's wonderful too.
0: Yeah, yeah. The the ability to have that overlap of of a skill that's not just game design but some other useful skill makes you exponentially more valuable to any given company. I mean, it's so much. As I know when I hire. Right. If somebody can do graphic design as well as game design, like phenomenal. Like now, you, now I could do a lot more with you. Or even somebody that's already been involved in community forums and can write well and can communicate with the public. Like that's a huge value add. You know, there's so many different things that can add value to. A game company or to any company that and the more that you have a diverse set of skills you know being a great designer is obviously fantastic but there's a lot of great designers out there being someone that can offer multiple different fields of skill uh, is really valuable uh, and even gets you a foot in the door in a variety of different ways into the company that you want to work with uh, and and then i would tie with that uh, something that I have known uh, knowing you as a friend uh, for many years and that uh, everybody that I know that's worked with you echoes constantly, which is, uh, you know, be a great person. <laughs> you have always been just a very kind, very friendly, very giving uh, human being and are, and are noted, uh, as such. And that makes it, it makes a big difference too, man. You want to hire people that are good that you want to work with. Uh, and, and I know that's something that you have exhibited, uh, throughout the time I've known you and I'm sure it's come across to our audience here. Uh, and so I want to thank you for, you know, coming on and having this chat with me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, uh, I, I was su- super excited to talk with you today, you know, I, I definitely uh, thank you for the nice words. And I, I think that um, it's really true. People remember how you make them feel. Uh, and, you know, ha- this story, our stories are ones where, you know, we had teammates and partners and people who wanted to work with us and, and we wanted to help them succeed and they wanted us to succeed. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Randy uh, Bueller, probably an hour ago now. And uh, he was the one who, like, he was my teammate when I was playing on the Magic Pro Tour. And like the interview process I had of getting into Wizards on a, on a contract was, um, he, we went to a, a Mexican restaurant for lunch and he was like, well, we always have this internship that comes up, you know, there's, there's no one I'd rather have do it than you, so would you like to do it? And that was that was the interview. Um, but, but, but of course, of course, that also is preceded by years and years of us working together and being, you know, having good experiences. And so, uh, yeah, that de- definitely um, you become what you do. And so you, m- you might as well do good things because uh, it just it, it'll make a big difference for you and f- for those around you. Uh,
0: yeah, so I yeah, that's right. My yeah, my, my, my story is, is nearly identical. I got I got my first job at Upper Deck because Dave Humphreys and, you know, a bunch of the other people that I worked with at the time Darwin Castle was contracting there and a bunch of people I worked with on Team Your Move Games were there. And so they were like, hey, yeah, we want to work with you again, because we worked together on a team in, in the pro tour for many, many years. And so we all knew each other's work ethic and, you know, the integrity and intelligence and that, you know, made it very easy to get get in the door. And then of course, you get the opportunity to demonstrate all of those things again to all the new people that you work with. And that's what lets you continue and succeed so so yeah it's a it's a very very true thing and and just being able to be good with people and and work on those things as you go is is just honestly there's no better lesson that you can take away because it's not going to matter whether you're a game designer or a product manager or you're in finance or you're in any non-game field uh that those fundamental skills are going to carry you forward uh so Uh, this has been, been fantastic. Is there anything uh, else that you would like to share uh, with our audience or other things you'd like to promote? Again, these usually it takes about a month or so after we talk before this actually goes live, um, with editing, et cetera. Um, but is there anything that you'd like to share or places people can find more cool stuff that you're working on, uh, uh, that if they want to find out more? Uh, I,
1: I guess I'll, I'll plug magic in general. Uh, I mean, to me, uh, I started playing Magic uh, when I was 14 years old, and uh, it's a game that changed my life in uh, wholly for the better, right? Like, uh, like, like I said, it, it when I discovered Magic, it, it blew my mind. It was it was so exciting, um, and it's led me to uh, make amazing friends, to travel the world, to get to compete. Uh, added to now come to work at Wizards, and and you know a big a big motivation of the reason I work at Wizards is you know to to pay it forward to get other people to f- find this amazing game. Um, and if it's not magic for you and it's some other game, that that's totally awesome. Uh, and then uh, se- the second thing I'll I'll plug is li- like I mentioned, I uh, I spend a lot of time working with and leading the uh, the magic partners with extra life you can go to extralife.wizards.com uh, and learn more about uh what we did there but it, it fundraises uh, money for uh children's hospitals uh, around around the country wizards specifically uh partners with seattle children's hospital and in doing that volunteer work um and, and leading the team and it being involved in magic it's just it opens up so many It opens up so many doors. It changes your perspective on the world. It just helps you. um, You know, volunteering helps you grow skills. And uh, I I would really encourage people out there to go and find an organization that they're passionate about uh, and, uh, you know, donate some money, donate uh, some time uh, and and really get involved because uh, I, I, I can't speak highly enough for how much it's really meant to me uh to be a part of uh extra life in the up uh and just doing volunteer work
0: that is a wonderful uh place to end it i love the work that extra life does i appreciate your uh contributions here I, uh, in fact, am uh, right now going to make a uh, donation uh, on your behalf here because I think it's such a great thing that you're doing and I'm happy to support. And we will share um, those links as well with this podcast. So thank you so much, Mike. And uh, I can't wait till we get another chance to chat.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Justin. I I look forward to listening to all of the other podcasts. Uh, You've talked to so many great designers and uh, I've, I've learned some things and, you know, it it just makes me reflect on, uh, what I know and, and how I can become a better designer. So I appreciate the work you do.
0: Thank you, man. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer.